that the scripture be taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Sandwiched within all these parables is the story of the lost son. If you care just to listen to the word, listen as we read the words of Jesus. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off to a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine, and the whole country, in the whole country, and he began to be in great need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So they began to celebrate. For our lesson this morning, let's stand together and sing, Just as I am, I come broken. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to Not 
Well, good morning, Savannah family. It's finally uh, time, and I'm uh, I'm on now. Good morning again. <laughs> it's a joy to be with you today. Appreciate the opportunity, and appreciate this privilege to uh, worship you, uh, worship with you today as we worship the Lord. Together, I've been waiting for this day for, uh, for for several weeks now, and appreciate your elders. I know you do, and have a lot of faith and confidence in these in these men, and appreciate very much uh, their uh, prayers, their diligence, um, and uh, their time that they've spent with me. And I appreciate it very much. Let's pray together before we enter in a study of God's word this morning. Father God, we. As Your people, as Your servants, Father, we come to You humbly now. Father, we thank You for this opportunity and for this privilege to take the time, the first day of the week, to come, Father, and to worship and to praise, to glorify and to magnify Your name. And Father, as we gathered around the table this morning, we pray that we've focused truly on the cross and focused on what Jesus Christ has done for us. Father God, we, we thank You for these songs that we've been able to sing to You as praises. Father, we thank You for listening and hearing and answering our prayers. And Father, now as we open up Your Word, we pray, Lord God, that You'll help us and that You'll prick and change our hearts, Father, if that needs to be the case today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, yesterday I went to Walmart and picked up two items I think you're probably very familiar with. In my right hand, I've got a tennis ball. In my left hand, I've got an egg. Uh, where's Dwayne? I'm going to try my best, brother, not to get this on the carpet, all right? Well, I better move this bowl or I'm going to get it on the carpet. Nothing magical about either one of these. I mean, this is a regular tennis ball that everybody's placed tennis with. This is just a normal egg that you can cook, that you can scramble, that you can boil, or you can fry, whatever you want to do with it. Here in a few seconds, I'm going to drop both of these. 
And you already know the reaction that's going to take place and that's going to happen when I drop both of them. But for illustration's sake this morning, and from what I want to share with you this morning, I want you to see it. Ready? Now, it wasn't a surprise to you about what happened, right? The egg, when I dropped it, it's all nice and ooey and gooey there in the bottom of this bowl, and it didn't bounce back, and this tennis ball came right back to me. You think about that for a moment. We'll come back to that at the end of our time together this morning. Mark chapter 14, if you would turn your Bibles there to Mark chapter 14. We've been looking, or you've been looking at the story, and today we started with the king. The king is arrived. The king is here. The birth of the king. And we looked at Matthew and Luke and John's account of the birth, but Mark doesn't refer, refer or talk to, to us about the birth of Jesus Christ. So I thought in our time together this morning that we would look at the gospel according to Mark as he looks and depicts the life of Jesus Christ. And, and especially this morning, we're going to look at Mark, the 14th chapter, together. You know, we as Americans, we love success, right? We love to celebrate success. We love to work hard and to achieve that success in life. We love to honor those who obtain that success in their life. Think about the 4th of July, for example. I mean, what do we do every single year during the 4th of July? We have parades, we have speeches, we have festivities, we have fireworks, we have uh, around our family and our friends, we have cookouts, we're on the lake together eating barbecue. But on that day, all across our country, millions of people will commemorate the birth of our nation. Our country focuses on that date because that's when we, back in 1776, declared independence from Great Britain. But why? Why do we do what we do every single 4th of July and commemorate the birth of our nation as we declare independence? Why do we do that? The answer is because we won. If we hadn't won, July 4th would not be a national holiday. Instead, we'd probably be driving on the left-hand side of the road. We'd probably be eating scones with jam for breakfast. We'd probably be drinking tea at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd probably be singing songs like God Save the Queen, using expressions like pip-pip and cheerio. But we don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff because we kicked the Redcoats out of America. And you can imagine July 4th is not a national holiday in Great Britain. England doesn't shoot fireworks off. They don't have parades. They don't have uh, speeches to commemorate their failure. Here's my point. We celebrate the successes and we either ignore or condemn the failures in our life. You know, far too often in this world, when we fail, and I said when we fail, we don't get a second chance. As we talked about it in, in our Bible class this morning, I'm thankful that we serve a God that gives us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and continues on in our life. Because you look at the men and women, the pages of the Old and New Testament, and some of the greatest men and the greatest women that you read about that God honors, that God puts on pedestals, that were great men of faith, every single one of them have something in common, and that is they all failed. Moses, he committed murder. David, he committed adultery. Jacob was a con artist and he deceived his own father. It was Noah that was guilty of that sin of drunkenness. It was Samson that loved women. And we can continue on and on and on, but failure is something that's far too common even in our own life. 
As we look at the Gospel of Mark this morning, to kind of set the background of the Gospel of Mark, what Mark is talking about is a group of Christians. And these group of Christians, they're going through some, some hard times in their life. They're being persecuted for what they're standing for. They're being persecuted for what they believe in. And many times they're told to deny their allegiance towards God. And if they don't, there's some consequences that's going to happen. They might be tortured. They might be arrested. And some of them were murdered. But you think in your life, if you were in that place and you were told to deny your faith, to deny your trust, your loyalty to Almighty God, what would you have done? If you were the one that had been would you deny Jesus Christ? If it was your family or if it was your business that was being threatened, would you have worshipped Caesar instead of worshipping God? If you were the one that was locked in that prison cell, if you were the one that was locked in that dark dungeon, what would you have done? What would you have said in order to gain your freedom back? I think all of us would, would say at the onset, hey, I, I'm, I'm loyal. I want to be faithful. I want to be honest. I want to be trustworthy to Jesus Christ. I will never fail Him. But we know in our human lives far too often each and every day we fail to do what we should be doing as Christians. And you think about these Christians in the first and second centuries in their life and that bitter memory of that failures that they had in their life. And they began to be thinking... Do I have my place in the church because I'm a failure? Am I a weak Christian now because of my failure? Will the church, my brothers and sisters, even accept me because of what I've done? Will Jesus even accept me because of what I've done? And so today we wrongly believe that there's no room for failure in the life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You can have some small setbacks. You can have some minor sins in your life, but a major sin, a major setback, you just can't do that and be a true faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Because if we fail the Lord, if we disappoint Him greatly, if we stumble in a public way or humiliating way, we can follow at a distance. But we can't have a lead prominent role in the kingdom of God because real Christians... Just don't fail. Or so the myth goes. I want to read to you a a quote now that I've had in in my hearts for a long time that goes along the subject we're talking about this morning. You'll see it on the screen. It says, Whenever you do something you believe in, you must accept some failure to experience success. Whenever you do something you believe in, you must accept some failure to experience success. Let me kind of give you a little quiz to illustrate what I'm talking about this morning. You'll see these questions and the answers on the screen. The first one is, how many different elections did Abraham Lincoln lose before finally getting elected President of the United States? And you've got the possible three choices there. And the correct answer is eight. He lost eight different times before finally being elected President of the United States. Or another person, for example, J.K. Rawlings. How many rejection letters did she receive before her book, Harry Potter, finally got picked up? And the correct answer is 12. Or how many times did Henry Ford go bankrupt with his car company before he finally became successful? And the answer is five. Or how many different restaurants did uh, reject Colonel Sanders' chicken recipe before KFC finally picked it up? And the answer is 1,009 times. Let me get on my soapbox for a minute and we'll come back to the lesson. 
You know, I think sometimes in life when we're going around and we're talking to our friends or talking to our neighbors or our co-workers, whoever it may be, about Jesus, and sometimes there might be one person that says, no, I'm not interested, and we'll go to somebody else, and they say, no, I'll go to another church, or I'm not interested, or I might want to get involved in that religious thing. And after about 10 or 15 people, what do we do? Well, I guess there's nobody else that wants to listen to me. But Colonel Sanders knew he had a genuine, true product and that product was going to be famous and so he kept going and it took him 1,009 times to finally find somebody that knew they wanted that chicken recipe. Church family, you've got a product. As Christians, we've got a product that will sell and that will save the world. It doesn't matter. If we go to one person, they say no. Or ten people, they say no. Or a hundred or a thousand people. Our responsibility is to do what? To go tell them. And that's what Colonel Sanders was. He said, I know somebody out there will want him. I just got to find that right person. And our responsibility as Christians today is to go out there and sow that seed. Sometimes the seed falls on the wayward. Sometimes it falls on the thorny, some the rocky. And sometimes it falls on the good, the parable says. But our responsibility is not to matter where we throw it or where it's sown, but to throw it. To throw that seed out there of God's kingdom. Now I'll get off my box for a minute. Go back to the, the, the uh, questions. Jackie Chan, he was expelled from what grade? And the answer is first. I don't know how in the world, and I know some of y'all are teachers and administrators, I don't know how in the world you get expelled from first grade or what you have to do to be able to get expelled from first grade. But nevertheless, that followed Jackie Chan's suit. Or the next question, how many different times does Steven Spielberg get rejected from film school? And the answer is three. Or how many different publishing companies turn down Dr. Seuss? The answer is 27. Or how many paintings did Vincent Van Gogh sell in his lifetime? And the answer is he only sold one. Years ago, there was a commercial that starred um, Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan in this basketball commercial, he's in this arena full of hundreds of people, thousands of people, and they're all chanting his name. He comes to center court, the spotlight is on him. The, The crowd quiets down and he makes this statement. He said, I've missed 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been entrusted with the game-winning shot, and I've missed it. And he said, i failed over and over and over again in my life. And he paused for a moment, and then he said, and that's why I succeeded. Now I go back to that statement, that quote we read a minute ago. Whenever you do something you believe in, you must accept some failure to experience success. And what makes a great disciple of Jesus Christ is not freedom from failure. I mean, that's our goal, right? All of us want to strive to be more like Jesus Christ. All of us want to be perfect and reach that goal, but we'll never be able to get that mark that Jesus made. Notice the writings of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John says, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And he goes on a little bit later and he says, and if anyone sins, a better rendering of this translation would say, and when you sin. 
Because you go back to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, and John says, if we say we have no sins, we're doing what? We're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. And so the expectations of a disciple of Jesus Christ is not perfection. The expectation of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is realizing when you've messed up, when you've sinned, when you've failed, repenting of that failure, and getting back up and being as active as you possibly can in the Lord's kingdom. And you think about these faithful followers of Jesus, these twelve apostles, and Mark's theme as he writes his letter of the life of Jesus Christ, over and over and over again, he reminds us that these twelve men, that they're just humans, that they make mistakes, that they have sins over and over and over again. And he points out that these 12 followers, these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles of His, as He tries to teach them these parables, as He tries to teach them uh, about things that were going to happen in the future, they many times didn't understand what was taking place. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They weren't able to fully grasp what Jesus was sharing with them. They were thinking Jesus was going to come and establish this earthly kingdom and have great political power. And they kept fighting amongst themselves. Who's going to sit on the left-hand side? Who's going to sit on the right-hand side of the throne? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Many times they were afraid of the storm when Jesus was there to calm the storm. Many times they were faithless when they should have been faithful. Many times they were speaking up when they should have been silent. Many times they were silent when they should have been speaking up. Many times they were proud when they should have been humble. Many times they were seeking power when they should have been serving. And so it just consistently and constantly, it seems like that these 12 followers of Jesus were disappointing Him and frustrating Him greatly. He was becoming very impatient with them. Even sometimes in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9, Jesus makes statements to him. He says, how long am I going to put up with you guys? Get behind me, Satan, he tells one of them. But in Mark chapter 14, the text I will look at the next few minutes with you, you just see, to me, see one failure after another. And the disciples, they're getting upset at the beginning of here in Mark chapter 14 because a woman pours perfume all over the head of Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them because of it. And later on in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's with His disciples. Then they're sleeping. And Jesus says, hey, you guys need to wake up. You need to watch. You need to pray with Me. Because in Jesus' greatest need, they all left Him. They all deserted Him. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 46. Then they, the soldiers and the mob, they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the Scripture must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. You know, Jesus throughout this chapter of Mark chapter 14, He's telling His disciples, hey, every single one of you in a little while, you're all going to leave Me. You're all going to desert Me. You're all going to deny Me. And in the end, what happens? Every single one of them leave. And it's important, I think, for us to know that Mark's not saying that all of these twelve men are, are terrible people. They're horrible people. But He's saying all twelve of these men, they had some failures. They had some setbacks, just like all of us do. 
And the lesson for us today is that the role of a failure in a disciple of Jesus Christ, failure does not have to be fatal in our lives. It does not have to be final in our lives. This next statement, if you don't get anything else, this is what I want you to understand and grasp this morning and you'll see it behind me. It is not failure that disqualifies us from discipleship. It is what we do with that failure that is important. It is not failure that disqualifies us from discipleship. It's how we respond, how we act, what we do next with that failure. That's the key. Because there's a failure that leads to life and forgiveness, and there's a failure that leads to death. And we're going to look at both those this morning in this text in Mark chapter 14, because knowing the difference makes the difference all in the world of if we're going to be a true follower, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. First of all, we see the failure of Judas in Mark chapter 14. Beginning in verse 10 and 11, we see Judas arranging this betrayal to take place. Verse 10, he says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went up to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So Judas is waiting just at the right time just at the right convenient time to do this. And you go on in the text, beginning in verse 43, you see how Judas leads this mob into Gethsemane. Verse 43 of Mark 14. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now his betrayer had given him a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, Immediately he went up to him and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, Rabbi! And he kissed him. To me, as I read this text here, the most remarkable thing is not that Judas portrayed Jesus, but it's how he portrayed him and why he portrayed him. We're told, at least in part, he's portraying him for money. Going back to verse 11, we read a moment ago. And the conscience of Judas must have been bothering him greatly because remember the conversation that Jesus and Judas had at the Last Supper? Beginning in verse 17. In the evening, he came with the twelve. And as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Surely I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. You know, Judas plays this innocent card. He plays the innocent role here. He says, surely, Lord, surely, Jesus, I'm not going to be the one that portrays you. And Mark tells us one by one, every single one of these disciples, they say, Lord, am I going to do this? Lord, is it I? And Matthew, and Matthew 26, in his account, says that Judas had the gall enough to, to, to specifically ask Jesus, Lord, am I going to be the one? that portrays you. And while they're in the garden, He portrays Him with the kiss. Why? Why kiss? Why not just point, Jesus is that guy over there. Or why not just describe to the guards 
This is what Jesus looks like. Why walk up to Him? Why embrace Him? Why hug Him? Why kiss Him and say, Rabbi, Rabbi? And then that next moment, betray Him. And it looks like, from what we see through Scripture, Judas had no remorse whatsoever. And this coldness in his heart as he betrays Jesus. But also here in Mark chapter 14, there's another failure that takes place. And it's the failure of Peter. And I want you to understand the onset this morning that Peter's failure was just as great as Judas's failure was. Both of them had failed. Both of them had done wrong. As you read about Peter's failure beginning back in verse 27 of the chapter. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more fervently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. They're all on the same page. They're all saying, Lord, we will be with you no matter what. Good times, bad times, no matter what happens. We've got your back. We've got your side. And one by one, as the heat began to be turned up, they left Him. They forsook Him. And they fled. Peter at least had the boldness and courage enough as he cuts off Malchus's ear, but that's about as far as his courage goes. But maybe the most famous part of Jesus' failure is denying knowing Him three different times, beginning in verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And then she came and saw Peter warming himself, and she looked at him and said, You are also with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is the one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by saw him and said to Peter again, Surely you are the one, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. And he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak. And a second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he thought about it, and he wept. Not once, not twice, but on three different occasions here in this setting, Peter denies knowing Jesus. Twice to this servant girl. Now you can understand maybe if it's a Roman soldier, if it's the high priest himself, and you're denying Jesus, maybe. But Jesus is, or Peter's just talking just to some people in the courtyard, and he denies it not once, not twice, but three different times. Peter fails, and he fails miserably. But what about Peter's attitude? What about Peter's heart after his failure? Notice verse 72 again. And when he thought about it, he wept. His heart, his attitude, his mind was a little bit different from that of Judas's. Now both Peter and Judas, they failed. They sinned. 
But as you look at the life of Judas, he doesn't repent of that sin. He doesn't come in in, in tears and broken because of what he's done. But Peter, Peter responds just like King David in the Old Testament with repentance, with tears, wanting to start over, wanting a better start, wanting a better life. I was reading about a young boy in a congregation not too long ago and the minister one Sunday night, he got all the kids in first grade up on stage and he said, I want you to tell me what you've been learning about this past quarter in your Sunday school classes. And one of the boys raised his hand and he said, I've been talking about King Solomon. And the preacher said, oh great, tell me some information about King Solomon. The guy, little boy said, well, he's got a lot of pets. And the minister thought about it for a minute and he said, okay, well tell me about all that. And he said, well, in class we've been talking about that King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. (laughs) And when the little boy said that, the audience did just what you did. And the little boy got really embarrassed because the boy realized he had said something and done something that was wrong. We've all been in that situation, haven't we? Times in our life when we've made mistakes... We've said things we shouldn't have said. We've done things we shouldn't have done. We started out with the strongest intentions. We wanted to be so faithful as we began that race. But we got distracted. We got around the wrong people. We had some setbacks. We made some bad decisions. And things changed in our life. And we failed. We messed up. We sinned. We made mistakes. Mark tells us here there's two kinds of failures, and I've already kind of briefly talked about them to you. Number one, there's the failure that leads to death. That was what Judas... He didn't repent. He didn't change. But then you see through the life of Peter that failure that results in forgiveness and results in a nude life because he was willing to change. He was willing to repent. And once he changed and once he repented of the things that he had done wrong, he got back up and did the best he could in God's kingdom for his service. You know the next time that we see Peter mentioned in the book of Mark is in Mark chapter 16. And it's kind of interesting in Mark chapter 16 as we close this morning, this angel, Jesus has just been raised from the dead. The angel appears to these women at the tomb, this empty tomb, and the angel tells these women these words. Mark 16, beginning in verse 6 and 7. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, whom was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He's going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him as He said to you. This angel mentions, he says, go tell Jesus' followers. And he says, go tell especially Peter. Everything's okay. The angel is wanting Peter to know Jesus still loves you. Jesus has forgiven you. And keep going on and doing the best that you can in your service in His kingdom. And there's good news for Mark's readers here as Mark writes this book to these Romans that are facing persecution under the emperor Nero. During their times of weakness, during their times of struggle, during their times of disappointment, he's encouraging them, hey, it's okay. Repentance, it's not perfection, but it's repentance 
That's the prerequisite for following Jesus Christ. And then what about us today? There's good news for us today as well because, again, we've all, fall, we've all fallen. We've all failed. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes in our life. We've all disappointed. We've all frustrated Jesus. We've denied Him. We've denied Him with our sins. We failed to stand up for Him and stand up for the truth. We failed to share our story with the people around us. And we too have messed up. We too have made mistakes. We too have sinned. But let me ask you this morning, as we started with, where are you? The tennis ball or the egg? Peter or Judas? Because Peter, yes, both fall. Both realize their mistakes. Both realize their wrongdoings. But one stays in that mistake and never recovers from it. And the other bounces back and wants to be useful for God's kingdom and God's service. In, Matthew, or in Luke chapter 15 that we read a moment ago, you got this story of this son. He takes all of his father's inheritance and he says, I'm going off this far country. I'm going to live the life that I want to live. Spend how I want to spend. Do what I want to do. And he spends it all and he winds up in this pig pen. Sleeping with the pigs, eating with the pigs. Can't afford anything else. That's his life. And the Bible says there in verse 17 of Luke 15, he comes to his senses. He realizes his mistake. He realizes what he's doing wrong. He says, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to stay in this pig pen the rest of my life. I don't want to stay in this mar. I don't want to stay in this sin. I want to get out. And he goes back to his father. And he says, Father, just make me one of your hired servants. And the father with his arms open wide says, Welcome home, my son. This young son realized what he had done wrong. This young son realized that he had made a mistake. This young son realized that he had failed. He realized he had sinned. But he didn't stay in that sin. He, like Peter, bounced back and wanted to be a useful servant in his father's house. Today, you might have come in this place broken. You might have come here today desperate. You might have come here today guilty. Let me tell you something, church. You do not have to leave here today that way. You can come today before you leave and to say, Lord God, I've sinned. I've messed up. I've made mistakes in my life. I need Your forgiveness. Today you can leave here whole, complete, filled, mended, pardoned, and forgiven all because of the blood of the Lamb. Let me ask you today as we close, are you the tennis ball or the egg? Are you Peter or are you Judas? Which one do you want to be? They both failed. They both messed up. But one rebounded from that failure realized that he didn't want to stay in that failure the rest of his life. That he wanted to be useful for God's kingdom and God's service. 
Are you a sinner today needing God's grace, needing God's love, needing God's mercy, needing the prayers of this church family, ultimately needing God's forgiveness? Have you put your life in submissive to the Lord? Have you been obedient to Him? Have you had your sins washed away through the waters of baptism? If not, then today's your day. And you can become, and you can leave, and you can walk out these doors a new person, a new creation in Jesus Christ. If we can help you, we pray you'll come as we stand as we sing. Just as I am.